0: Hello and welcome to fans the podcast hosted by me Sachin Nakrani in which I speak to people I like find interesting or both about being football fans and joining me for this episode to talk all things Charlton Athletic as well as her involvement in the excellent Her Game 2 initiative it's Natasha Everett. Natasha how are you? Hi Sachin. I'm good how are you? I'm very well, very well, thank you. We've just been saying off air that we're both working today, you're in the office at TalkSport, I'm at home working from home today for The Guardian and we we could have started this all a little bit sooner, can we start starting around 6 o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon and we could have started this at least 15 minutes earlier, we've just been sort of politely twiddling our thumbs waiting for our, uh, our uh, official recording time to start, but... Um, yeah, we could have started, bit. we both finished basically about fifteen minutes ago, didn't we? It's
1: fine. We live, we live and we learn. We live and we learn.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, look, uh, I'm really glad you ca- uh, you've come on. We've got loads to talk about. Charlton, really interesting club. Um, had an interesting, certainly recent histories, which I'm which I'm really fascinated to talk to you about. And we will absolutely get into the her game two stuff as well, which I think is really interesting, excellent, uh, and sadly in a way important. And so we'll talk all about that as well. Um, before we do that, though, I do uh, yeah, I want to talk to you about. I mean, you are at TalkSport Towers at the moment. You just right. finished, you told me just now, um, uh, sort a nine to five shift. Um, I think, is it right? You're, you're working as a, a sort of journalist apprentice there, is it right? You've got sort of an apprentice sort of co- contract there. I'm intrigued. How did, how did that come about? How did the opportunity come about and what does it actually entail?
1: Yeah, so I started at TalkSport back in August last year, which is absolutely flying by. I can't believe it's been that long now, actually. But yeah, um, Yeah, so I first heard about the job because two of my friends um, both worked as the uh, previous year's apprentices, so TalkSport started doing the apprenticeship back in the back end of 2020, um, kind of to drive towards giving opportunities to people that otherwise wouldn't get a chance to work in the football industry or like the sport industry, Mm -hmm. Um, I think in the media, sorry, because I think obviously most people will come through doing university degrees or, you know, they'll know someone in the industry and that's how they get in. And I think, it, you know, it's not as many opportunities for people that aren't privileged enough to be in that position. So, yeah, it's also hire three apprentices first time round um and yeah they said to me because at the time (laughs) it was weird to think now but at the time I was working for a construction consultants as a social media manager and I loved my job to bits it was brilliant but I think my my friends always knew that I was absolutely obsessed with Football and mm. like sport general, but mainly football, um, and yeah, they said, you know they're doing another round of these apprenticeships, just go for it, why not um, and rather than obviously talk sports or radio station, right, but this apprenticeship was going to be for the website, it was going to be for dot com um and so that would entail a bit of social media stuff, but also mainly sports writing um and for me like whenever I was at school I used to hate maths like English was my thing like, <laughs> like kindred spirits like in that, that sense
0: yeah yeah, yeah. more I words than to... numbers yeah
1: yeah I mean I got a bit at GCSE and I was like I'll leave it at that I'm never touching numbers again you know <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> that sort
1: of thing so yeah it's always been my kind of it'd be a perfect storm of I love writing and I love football so what you know what could be mm. the more ideal job and I think before that I, I did go to uni. I, I went to Uni of Reading for three years and I finished my degree in the middle of the pandemic.
2: I'll finally
1: be graduating this this summer at my yeah. ceremony, so that's all good. But um yeah, I did a um, politics degree. So not you know, it kind of kind of relates in a weird mm. way to being a sports journalist, but yeah not directly related at all and I think halfway through my degree even though I I don't regret doing it at all but I kind of thought ah I'd love to do sports journalism but I just don't know how I could get into it it's a very concentrated and competitive industry and especially for a woman as well it's even harder to get in so I kind of wrote it off and then it was kind of as if it was fate in a way not to sound cheesy but my two friends telling me about the opportunity and anyway I yeah went went for it this was in maybe it might have been a year ago you know nearly a year ago and I had like multiple rounds of interviews but there was only one spot and I thought to myself like huh, this is going to be seriously competitive I mean the job market was impossible anyway <laughs> after yeah, COVID. yeah. yeah. Um, and I thought you know we'll go for it and as the rounds like kept going through the interview stages so I thought okay, this is this is good. Was, I'm proud of myself for you again to yeah. this point. Um, and yeah, I got to the final stage and um, there was eight of us, I think, um, on the assessment day. And Two of them were women, me and another uh, girl that works here as well. Actually, it's called Leonie. She's brilliant as well. Um, and the rest of them were guys. Um, all absolutely brilliant, so talented. Um, and I remember coming out of the assessment centre and thinking... Okay, I think I did well, but I could also see why I wouldn't get the job because everyone was just so brilliant mm. and they'd had experiences like, oh, I've been in the press box at Chelsea and like I've done this internship and I was there like, I'm working construction. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I didn't expect it at all. Yeah. Um, and they called me up about two weeks later and told me I got the job. I, don't, I said, if you, if you got the right person, <laughs> I was just like, surely not. But yeah, yeah. so. Rest is history. So now I, um, at the moment, I'm doing sports writing for the website. I'm absolutely loving it.
0: That is fantastic, and it's it's a story that's very similar to mine, actually, weirdly, because I yeah I did a history degree years ago. I'm going to show my age here. I graduated from university in 2002. And I'm a very <laughs> old a very old man, and um, yeah, I wanted to be a sports journalist as well. And um, so after my history degree, I did a postgraduate uh degree in newspaper journalism and yeah desperate to be a sports journalist but couldn't find the way in and I started off as a local journalist and I worked as a local news as a a news journalist and kept sort of writing to national papers trying to see if I can get a you know job in sport didn't get well I got barely any encouragement back did a bit of freelancing um uh, as a non-league football writer for the non-league paper I don't know if it exists Mm -hmm. anymore but I was a Stevenage correspondent I used to do that on my weekends which was fine but nothing was Heading really towards a permanent job as a sports journalist, and I'd essentially given up. And then a friend of mine said to me, In when would it have been in the sort of summer of 2007? Um, <laughs> the Guardian are taking on to, to take on a sports trainee every year, um, to work on the sports department. And um, I literally hadn't heard of it, I didn't know it existed, so I applied for it and then didn't hear anything for months. I think it was about May 2007, I applied, didn't hear anything for a couple of months, and then just Thought oh, I hadn't got it because it's obviously as you like with you, super competitive, and I had very, very, very little sports journalism experience you know, mm. sod all really uh, apart from that sort of freelance stuff I was doing at, at, for the non league paper. And then got a call in August saying, Yeah, you know, you've got an interview, pass that one, pass the second one, and then and got the job. So it's amazing how these things can happen. Yeah, I think it's kind of a lesson to people like, you've got that dream. Yeah you know, don't give up, but also crucially know about the opportunities because it feels like yeah. both me and you could have missed our opportunities. Yeah,
1: you know, definitely. If our
0: friends hadn't been, they hadn't told us about So always kind of sort of look around and, and, and sort of investigate what might be available and then go for them, I guess.
1: Yeah, yeah I think um, definitely like in the world yeah. of Twitter as well. Like, yeah. if, I mean, there's opportunities popping up all over the place. I think mean, that that is such a good bonus of the social media generation obviously as a concert as well but many pros is that you know you get so much more exposure to opportunities like that definitely and I think it's I think the sports industry is kind of conscious or the media side of it are conscious of not just hiring the same people mm-hmm. and giving it such a wider kind of diverse perspective because inevitably you're going to appeal to a bigger audience then aren't you by having all the different perspectives yeah. I think for the case of me and you you I think they didn't really want someone that was polished and had been to that done sports journalism for years before that. I think it actually benefits them to bring in people that have a fresh kind of, you know, point of view. Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. Well, on that point, I should say someone who's really worth following on Twitter is he's, he's a football commentator actually called Gary Taphouse. And I've just brought up his Twitter profile here to make sure I get his handle right. So it's at Gary Taphouse, T-A-P-H-O-U-S-E. Um, and he regularly post journalism jobs um it just just does it have kindness of his uh heart really i don't i don't know why i don't don't think he's making any money off it or he works for like i wish i
1: followed him like two years ago yeah yeah so do (laughs) Yeah. yeah
0: if you're sort of an aspiring journalist follow gary taphouse at gary taphouse on uh on twitter and he just regularly posts jobs and um which I'm, you know, just a fantastic sort of voluntary service from him. Yeah. Not, not
1: all heroes vocate. Indeed,
0: yeah. <laughs> he's just, a, he's a commentator, you know, works for Sky and um, various other people, but he just, yeah, does his, yeah, as you say, a bit of a superhero from that point yeah. of view, <laughs> providing a wonderful service. Um, you touched on it a couple of times there while you were talking, obviously being a female journalist and uh, I mean, there are, well, we'll come on to this in a second, but certainly when I started out, when I started Guardian in 2007, there was very, very few, either in broadcast or or print, A lot more now, fantastic sort of uh, journalists, like Kelly Cates, Jackie Oatley, Natalie Perks, um, Natalie Sawyer, Reshman Chowdhury. At my place, Suzanne Rack, who's our female football correspondent, who's absolutely fantastic. Molly Hudson, I believe, at times. Um, Coming into the industry then as a female, how have you found it? My sense, as I said, is it's not as kind of difficult and outright hostile and outright kind of weird to be a woman in, in journalism uh, as it as it sort of sadly was for too long, that's probably more welcoming, and you've got a lot more role models to sort of feed off and get support from is is that fair,
1: yeah, definitely, I think, yeah, like speaking to people that have worked in the football, well like the journalism industry, sorry for a long time sort of sport, like they all say that you know the classic like it's all white male dominated, mm. and it's only really in the last ten years that we've seen a kind of shift away from that. Um, and I think, yeah, I, I agree, like role models like here, for example, <laughs> mine would probably be like Laura Woods and Ashley Sawyer, right? Yeah, so, yeah.
2: Yeah. I,
1: And I knew that they worked for Talksport even before I applied for the apprenticeship. So I think even before I applied, I was kind of like, well, clearly they, you know, they think highly of their female staff, mm-hmm. you know, they're putting them on their prime slots on their shows, yeah. you know, they're not just doing it because they're doing a, a tick box exercise. Like these women are actually respected and they have, fantastic skills and you know their knowledge is unbelievable um so I think from that I always I think I I knew that it would be fine but obviously there is that little voice in the back of your head which you know most females in the footballing world will kind of have that doubt of oh but will people just question whether I'm there because I'm just you know they're just trying to tick a box and that's the only reason why I'm here because you know out of all the seven other men or six other men that were in the final stage of my interview so I only got picked because I'm a woman
2: mm.
1: um and you know you never know what it's going to be like when you walk into a new job whether that's in the football media industry or whether that's in any job in terms of like men respecting you and men thinking that you deserve to be there as much as they do um but now I, I have to say since I've joined I've, I've never once felt like that at all like that I've N- not felt welcome, or that I've been seen as any different just because I'm a girl. Like definitely not. Like there's, yeah. Even with the pieces that I get given to write, or like anything like that, like it's never skewed because I'm a woman. Yeah. Like, don't get me wrong. There'll be certain topics that I suggest because I'm like, as from a female perspective, I'm like, yeah. this is good. But it will never like. No, no one's ever kind of seen my gender as a reason to treat me any differently. So it's yeah. been great.
0: Oh, that's excellent here. I said we will talk later about your experiences as a as a female football fan in in the context of her game too. Um yeah, no, that's that's really good. And have you had a chance to write a lot about Charlton? Have you been sent to the valley to, to cover any games or to speak to any players there?
1: Do you know what I haven't yet, but it's, it's on the bucket list. Yeah, it is on the bucket list. Can um, imagine. to be fair, I spoke to um Steve Avery, who's the head of Charlton's Academy. Um obviously, you know, Charlton's Academy has been renowned since mm. we a long time yeah, you know yeah. that we produce some really unbelievable players but sadly most of them have moved on from us but it's another subject um but yeah so i spoke to him about um the likes of joe gomez um esri concert jongo shelby and just to kind of get a bit of an insight as to how just how chum produce all these starlets because they mm. seem to just churn them out yeah. <laughs> every year i mean most recently we sold um To be fair, he'd not been in our academy for long, but he had played for under-23s. That's Mason Burstow. Um, He broke into the first team this year and he got sold to Chelsea for, I think it's just over one million um, in the January transfer window, literally on deadline day. So yeah, they're popping up over the place. So I spoke to him about that and kind of, you know, whether he's still in touch with those players and like whether they still think fondly of their time at Charlton and things like that. So yeah, and then I wrote. A couple of pieces about, obviously, Johnny Jackson took over, didn't mm. he, as manager this yeah. season, uh, yeah. uh, you know, club legend. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I yeah, got to write about that and then also got to write a couple of other p- bits and pieces about the managerial situation, to be fair. Because at one point, I think even though Jacko had won like, all these games in a row as soon as he took over, um the Thomas sangard our owner, was still, but, you know, not promising that he was definitely going to get the job. Mm. And there was stuff like we were being linked to a Steven Gerrard's old assistant at Rangers and <laughs> stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah. and loosely, I'm sometimes loosely covering them, but then sometimes, yeah, I get the pleasure of if fully writing an article about children, yeah. so it's great
0: excellent very good very good um i've I've covered i'm covered the game at charlton a while but i did a few back in Mm -hmm. my early days and uh, they treat you well there so yeah once you get there you'll obviously love it being a charlton fan but i think you'll also I love it, just for the pure experience of, of working. That's mm. a good place to work. And, and yeah, we will talk about some of uh, Charlton Academy graduates later when we talk about your all-time Charlton eleven. There is one player you already mentioned in there, Joe Gomez, that as a Liverpool fan, I, I want to get your thoughts on especially. Yeah. Uh, but let's get into the meat of it then. Let's talk about Charlton and, and your love for them. And I guess the obvious first question is, why is Natasha Everett a Charlton Athletic fan? I think I ask
1: myself that every week, <laughs> Why have you cursed yourself Bigger <laughs> a Charlton fan? Yeah. I love them to pieces, really. No, um, <laughs> well, to be fair, I, I I didn't really have a choice.
2: Yeah.
1: Um. But so my parents actually met at a Cheltenham game.
0: Oh wow. Uh,
1: and my dad's uh, side of the family, his parents were both Cheltenham fans as well. Um. My nan's dad was actually a Millwall fan, so that could have gone really badly. <laughs> uh, but he, her dad, said to her like, "No, I'm taking you down Chong because it's a yeah. lot, you know, more PC and a lot." Yeah, <laughs> nice yeah, yeah. And for children, <laughs> this is <was> like <laughs> back then as well, way back then. So, but yeah, so then my nan and granddad both children and then, never to be their children, were charlotte fans as well, including my dad and his brother. Um, so then, my dad and my mum, my dad writes the van um, fanzine, he started it back in the 1980s. Uh, it's called Voice of the Valley. Um, wow. It's this little, little project, it comes into pieces. Um, but yeah, so he's been one of those old school fanzine writers yeah. since back then, and he's carried it on. Um, so, but he, when he used to sell it outside of the ground, my mum kind of saw him once and was like, oh, that's the guy, this was a fanzine. And then, you know, she would go up and buy it from him now and again. And then I think one time, obviously, they must have come across each other. But yeah, one, one time, I, th- I think they sat next to each other at an away game. And I think it kind of just went from there, really. So then, yeah, so hence me, I did not have a choice when it came to becoming a child fan. (laughs) Because Odin was so, um, you know, they they met through Charlton. So, of course, it would make sense to me to be a child fan. And, yeah, when I was little, obviously, I think my first game was when I was three, which I'm quite surprised by because considering how tall mad my parents are, You'd think they would have got me down to the valley at like three months old and just be like, yeah, "Come yeah, on, yeah. off you go!" Like, "Let's yeah, indoctrinate yeah. you." But no, they actually waited. Um, they waited till I was three, and um, yeah, I think we was a it was a draw with Newcastle back in like 2001. So, yeah, um, but that was that was way back then, and then ever since I've sat in that same that same place. So now and again, I've gone behind the goal with mates and stuff, but my season tickets have always been back in that row where I first sat when I was three years old. So yeah, it's just gone from there. My parents, you know, I'm very thankful for it now considering we spent like more than half the last decade in League One. Yeah. But, you know, they used to drag me along to all these Premier League games whether that's at the Valley or away as well. So yeah, I managed to tick off all these grounds that I would not been able to tick off <laughs> over the last like yeah. 10 years. Um, but yeah, so it's been a, um, I've been documented since birth. But yeah, I wouldn't have it any other way.
0: Well, we'll talk about your first game uh, shortly, which is, yeah, I've been doing a bit of research into it as well. Um, but I've got to say, that is probably the most beautiful origin story I've ever heard of why <laughs> someone nice. supports the team they do. That is absolutely lovely that yeah. your parents met through child. Your dad's a fanzine seller and they and they obviously spoke when he was selling the fanzine and then they met inside the ground. That's just absolutely, it's just absolutely beautiful. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I mean, does your dad still sell the fanzine then? Is He, still,
2: he does, yeah. yeah. So, yeah.
1: He did it. He started it in the 80s and he's going to tell me off because I don't remember the <laughs> date but um, he started it in the 80s and then um, he had a break. He, he worked for Tom for a while um, when we were in the Premier League and then so he stopped it then and then he picked it back up again after he left. So yeah, so it's been, it's been going ever since. So still chugging away. He's nearly 60, bless him. and
2: Blimey. He's
1: like, oh, I'm not sure I can do these late nights any longer, you know, yeah. editing it all up until like 4am in the morning and then, He'll never give it up though. He says he's gonna give it up. Yeah. He, ne- he never will because he loves it too
0: much. I mean, fanzines are just beautiful things. I my first yeah. ever sort of sports writing she was for for a for a Liverpool fanzine called the Liverpool Way. And uh, I wrote for a couple of others after that as well. And just the thrill of seeing a piece of the fanzine. And they're still it's kind of hard, it's kind of incredible in the way they still exist in this digital age where everyone's, you know, yeah. print sort of generally is kind of dying and people read things on their phones. And it's still wonderful yeah. when I go to Anfield or away grounds to see fanzine sellers outside the ground and they are Beautiful thing because they're written by the fans for the fans. They've got you know just some of the funniest, wittiest articles in there that you can imagine, and it is great that they still exist. I think probably most clubs have got at least one, so it's great to know. Yeah, have got one, and your dad selling as well. I mean, does does your dad and mum still go to the games together as well? They do. Yeah, Yeah. they're
1: still season ticket holders. Yeah, so because I I moved out after uni, obviously COVID hit, but then when we kind of came out of lockdown, I moved up to London for work and. And um, that's my way of seeing them now. But, you yeah. know, it's just like going to football every Saturday and still seeing them, like, can't get rid of me. I'm still yeah. going to be here. <laughs> so do you guys yeah. all sit together then? We do. Yeah, yeah. so uh, in so it's a bit crazy, but in the rows that we sit, there's probably about three or four rows in the East End, which is what called the Alan Kirby East actually, this season. Correct myself. Um, but um, there's about three or four rows and... I'm not joking. Like everyone knows everyone. Yeah,
2: yeah. And like this is the same thing, isn't faces. It? Yeah, yeah.
1: From the last like however long the, that stand's been open, like twenty twenty five years. So it's kind of, yeah, it's 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 lovely because my cousin and my uncle sit behind me, and then got. With people that my dad went to school with behind as well, and then like the people in front that we've been friends with for years, and yeah, it's
0: it's great, yeah. That is one of the beautiful things when you've when you a season tick old and you stay mm-hmm. in the same seat for ages. Um, I've only got a minor scale at Anfield, I mean, I've got season tick in the cop, I've had it for a few years, but it's just getting to know yes. everyone around you, and it's just when you go, you sort of almost excited about seeing them as the match as well. Oh, but you've had it over yeah. such a long period of time, and now, genuinely, I think it's just just I'm really touched by that origin story, it's just so unbelievably beautiful. <laughs> yes. It's just honestly. He's like quite moved by it. It's it's fantastic. That's okay, just yeah. that is lovely. Um, so yeah, obviously, you know, yeah, so you're steeped in Charlton. And obviously you're steeped, I guess, in South London as well. It's where you're originally from, I'm, I'm guessing. And in and in South London there are four professional football teams. Obviously Charlton, Millwall, who you mentioned, uh Crystal Palace and AFC Wimbledon as well. Uh, it is an area renowned for for those you know for having those four sort of very sort of well AFC Wimbledon relatively new but obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. they're the old former Wimbledon so four kind of rel- pretty historic clubs also an area renowned for, for for its youth and recreational football produced loads of professional footballers you know some who've come through chance academy the likes of Joe Gomez but also David Rocast or Rio Ferdinand Jaden Sancho to name a few. Yeah. Um, I asked Elliot Steele, who was on an episode of this podcast um, a little while back as a Crystal Palace fan, the same question. I'll ask it to you. He's, you know, he grew up in South London as well, Sports Palace. Mm-hmm. Did you ever sense growing up that you were in an area that was a real kind of hotbed for football? And have you ha- have, do you have any thoughts for why, for, for why the area has produced so many great footballers? I mean, to give you one stat, and this was contained in a BT Sport documentary called South of the River that was shown, mm-hmm. uh, I think, two years ago. Well, no, last year, sorry, Rhea Ferdinand presented that I believe, that in 2020, 14% of the Premier League's English-born players came from 10 square miles of South London, which I think is an incredible stat. Wow. So, that yeah, that's that coming up that you're from an area that absolutely lives and breathes football.
1: Yeah, so I was born in Greenwich, obviously, like heart of South East London, mm. um, and where a lot of the play academy players are from, like around that sort of area. Um, but when I was about 10 I moved a little bit further out to Bexley which is still southeast London. although some people say it's Kent but that's not (laughs) for another day Um, but so I moved around there and then I spent most of my childhood to be fair from the age of like nine onwards living in on the coast of Kent in Ramsgate but I do remember that there was someone that I sat next to in my primary school in Bexley, so I'm still I'm still going to call it in London. <laughs> um, and the guy that sat next to me in my maths class, and he was a Millwall fan. And I remember being like eight or nine years old, and this kid would just constantly rip into me about Charlton. Like even back then, like he was proper proper Millwall. Yeah. Really, really into it. And this is when we were in the Premier League as well. So I was saying, you can have a leg to stand on. Yeah, what, what leg do you have to stand on here? Like what? What? What's that about? We've never won yeah. an FA Cup. i the only team in South London to win the FA Cup. You know, like we're in the Premier League. Where are you? That sort yeah. of thing. Um, and a classic, the classic line that Millwall fans bring out is, "Oh, you know, you haven't beaten us since the 1990s," and we're like. Yes, that's because a majority of that time we were in the Premier League. That's why. <laughs> but um, yeah, anyway. and then stop. So, he's
0: fighting, He's just getting I shot see. left, right, and
1: centre. I know. And then um, so yeah, was sat next to him for my whole maths class. Anyway, I turned on the TV a couple of years ago to watch a Millwall game, and he was playing. I'd like, I, looked, I looked at him and honestly, he doesn't look that different from when he, I hope, you know, if he hears this, sorry, I hope you don't take offense to that, but it doesn't look any different to when he was like nine years old. It's like a spitting image. And his name's um, Danny McNamara. I believe he's he's a right back at Millwall.
2: Yeah,
1: I think and, I um, yeah, I, was, yeah. I saw him on the TV and I was like, oh my God, it's him. I was like, fair enough. All the days of, you know, picking <laughs> up Millwall paid off because he got his yeah. professional contract there. And I think he starts. And I think. I think they played Barnsley at the weekend. I think he scored two goals and their 4 and yeah, one win. <laughs> so yeah, from that perspective, I have, you know, met, yeah. met someone, a new someone that has gone on to, to be a footballer. So yeah, I think even in the tiny corners like South East London, I just think it's crazy how many amazing footballers they produce. Yeah. But I think I think it speaks volumes about the academies though. Like I mean, obviously I'm gonna say about Charlton, but I think all of them I knew. A few boys from um, Kent, the way I grew up, I grew up in Ramsgate. And um, one of my friends that was from Dover, he went through Millwall's Academy and then he went into the first team. And He doesn't play there anymore, but it just shows how, you know, brilliant those academies are yeah. and the talent that they do bring through. Um, and I think they do, I think they have a, a, I don't know what it is, and this is why I tried to get out of Steve Avery, but... When I spoke to him, but I, they just must have such an eye for players, so that they mm. can see have the ability to go to go on and be brilliant. And yeah, it's just it's magic, really, isn't
0: it? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great story. No, I think I think yeah, you're right. I think it's combination too. I think the academies are really well set up. Palace have obviously got a great one as well. I think obviously mm. the scouting and coaching at those academies is is really good. And mm. I think I think just as I said, that recreational element as well. I mean, cage football I think is quite big in South London. I remember I Callum Hudson Adoy about this a, a little while back and. um off an England game, and he was—he's uh, from South London as well. And he said he sort of developed a lot of his skills from playing that sort of cage game. So I think it's just a mix of everything that leads to South London just producing
1: Definitely. so many good
0: footballers. And as I said, yeah, for as uh, I mean, your story is perfect It's it combines two things of <laughs> the recreational side or the development side of players sort of from the area going on to be players and being taken by clubs in the area as well. But also that yeah. kind of rivalry and the intensity of. What it means to be a South London football fan, as well, that yeah. like, you know you've got Millwall and Charlton fans, you know, arguing at primary school as well, which I think's
1: <laughs> so, so
0: brilliant. To <laughs> say. Yeah. yeah,
1: I think I think South London football fans. I I don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm going to say this, but we are ridiculously passionate. Yeah. I mean, obviously, much to my, you know, dismay, Palace fans get bigged up on the regular on TV, and you know, they come in their numbers and they're very vocal, and it's the same with. Charm fans the same with Millwall fans and even though obviously Wimbledon obviously they're a much bigger club before everything went on but even there they had 8,000 people the other day at their ground and you know they can they can strike up an atmosphere just think the passion that runs through South London when it comes to football is, is, is insane. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I feel on a daily basis, living in Beckenham and living next door to a, a pair of Palace fans, Ron and Marion, <laughs> the lovely Ron and Marion who, who uh, yeah, okay. getting on a bit now, but they still absolutely love the Eagles. Um, <laughs> right. Let's talk about your first Charlton game. So you, yeah, you mentioned it then. So I always ask guests when they come on to tell me what was their first game and you, as a, you, you touched on it. So it was a one all draw versus newcastle at the valley on the 1st of december 2001 uh, you were three which again makes me feel very old so that you were three <laughs> in 2001 i was 20 um yeah gary speed gave newcastle lead on 73 minutes then charlie mcdonald on as a substitute equalized 10 minutes later and there was also another notable incident in that game i'm going to ask you do you remember what it was that's bad but no i don't right. alan shearer was sent off oh yes.
1: really he did,
0: yeah he was sent off in 87 minutes for an elbow on john fortune so um you were three you're incredibly young um i imagine you remember absolutely nothing about this guy
1: that's that's it's good to know that <laughs> my eyes did once watch alan shearer get sent off that's yeah. quite you know it's quite a good story
0: <laughs> yeah, sheer elbow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he had a few, I think, in his career. I think he wasn't the, let's let's say, he wasn't the cleanest of players. I'm not, I am not. I think he's probably had two or three sendings off. But um, yeah, one was at the Valley in December 2001. Okay, but yeah, yeah, I guess you, yeah, three years old. I mean, you say your parents, you, you said you're quite surprised how long they waited to take you. I would also suggest three is... A very young age you began be going to football so they, they probably they, they in fact if anything they took you too early but um yeah yeah I guess you just remember nothing about this game have you been told stories about how you were at the game or anything like that
1: I think like when I was younger I well I when I was really little and like, when I first started going I think I was so like wow like so fascinated like there's this big crowd all this big noise and there's a couple of pictures um I was just energy afterwards. there's a couple of pictures of me sat on my seat well I don't even know if I had a season ticket I I don't think so but anyway when I sat on my seat for the first time and like my legs obviously weren't even like going off the edge of the chair I was just kind of sat there like just really soaking it all in I looked really concentrated um but yes I think I I was fascinated when I was really little but then I
2: think
1: as time went on like my mum and dad always tell me and this is at the point where I'm like I wish I could go back in time and shake myself and be like, can you pay attention? Because <laughs> when I was like, maybe like seven, eight, nine, and bearing in mind it's like Charlton's like kind of time when they were coming out of the Premier League, I was I was more interested in going on my Nintendo DS uh, games and like, I was just not interested at all, which oh, is mad yeah. to think now because I'm yeah. absolutely obsessed with it, but... At the time, I just didn't want to know. I wasn't interested. Like my mum said, that I definitely had about three or four naps uh, <laughs> during games sometimes, which I just think is crazy. But obviously, like in my head, like eight-year-old Tasha's head was thinking, okay, well we play Liverpool every week, so like yeah. I'm not going to pay attention. It's fine. I'm going to go play Nintendo on my Nintendo DS. It's more interesting, and I could see loads of kids around the ground doing it as well. So yeah. it's just so funny. I'd love to know. Now they're probably all thinking the same thing as me. Like, why did I not pay attention to when we were playing all these massive clubs? So I just wasn't appreciating it. So yeah, but then when I was about, I'd say when I was about 12, that was when I started really getting back into it again. Um, I don't know what switch. I think it was partly because around that time, Chung got promoted back out of League One. It's the season where Chris Powell got promoted, and yeah, we won the league with 101 points. It was just amazing. So, yeah, yeah I think that forced me to fall back in love with
0: it. Well, I think it's also fair enough if you're seven years old or whatever, you know, you have no sense of what's kind of going on around you. And you, yeah, you know, kids do get kids of that age get really distracted, don't they? And you, you're not <laughs> going to sit there going, I think I should really appreciate this period because when Adam <laughs> Kirvishley leaves, there's, there's a very good chance we're going to get relegated. I mean, yeah. you're seven, you know, I mean, yeah. you're not thinking like that so I wouldn't be particularly <laughs> hard on yourselves. um hard on yourself we'll come on to yeah the sort of Alan Kirby years a little bit um hmm. in a little while yeah I just want to sort of talk about I mean you mentioned obviously you know you've had the same season ticket your entire life you've got that lovely warm kind of community in that area uh, where you sit which is absolutely wonderful and I think there's this broad sense about Charlton I think they the ultimate the club that old that more than any other club in England gets this tag of being a nice family club, you know, Charlton, a real family club. You hear it almost time. You hear it so often it has just become a slightly tired cliche. Yeah. But I'm just I'm curious how true that is. I mean, when I mean you don't know any different because you obviously support them all your life. But do you get a sense that watching Charlton, the experience of being there, there is something quite family orientated about it? And how I'm, I'm curious how if that is the case, how that manifests itself. I mean, to give you sort of one example, I think a story that sums up. What it means to be a family club is we had Miles Jacobson on this podcast uh a while back over a year ago, who's the guy created football manager, the computer mm. goes a hugely iconic football game. He's a Watford fan. And he spoke about when he was a kid, uh, his mum took him to Watford. His dad wasn't interested, I think, in football at all. So his mum used to take him, but she didn't like football either, as well. Mm. And um, but she'd take him sort of to games. And then one day, I think there was a, a woman and her son sat behind him, and she sort of noticed that a Miles's mum was kind of reading sort of a magazine during the game and obviously wasn't interested. And she sort of said to him, look, if you don't ever want to come back here to Vicarage Road, you can leave your son with us and we'll, you know, we'll look after him. She was like, oh, that'd be bloody marvellous, actually. So he used to then sit with this woman and their son, you know. And for me, that is sums up, that is what it means to be a family club, to have that real sense of community within the stands. So is that sort of, is that similar sort of feel at Charlton, do you feel? Do you feel that the nice family club tag is actually warranted and isn't actually a bit of a Thai cliche?
1: Yeah, 100%. I mean, obviously, like, every football club has the side that isn't that pleasant I and mean, you wouldn't want to be known for. That's just inevitable in football, unfortunately. However, no, I feel like, the, honestly, the, 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 like, 99.9% of the Trump fans I've ever come across have been absolutely lovely. I mean, like, considering we're not, you know, we're not a small club. Like, we might no. be in League One. <laughs> I haven't been in the Premier League in a while, but, you know, we're, we're, we're a big club. Like, I will still say that. And considering that I think sometimes when you have a club of our size and you go to away games or you go to home games or you go to the pub or before or after and you don't tend to recognize people that much yeah. like you know and the, or the fan base isn't consistent with every away game whereas at Charlton like you will see exactly the same people all the time like and I'm not just saying that like and even if I don't know their name either like a majority of them sounds awful but you don't tend to know people's names you just know their faces and it will be all the same people and my mum and dad say the same it's always been like that it's always the same hardcore group of charm fans that go and it's not just a small lot of us either like it's it's quite a large amount and yeah i think from that side you know everyone's so friendly i think that yeah just all the charm fans just brilliant and Whenever, um, whenever I've gone to games or whatever, it's just been great. But I think also, like, the club has done so much work in terms of, that like, in the community and, like, you know, in terms of, like, anti-discrimination stuff. I think they've been really brilliant with that sort of thing. So in terms of welcoming people that wouldn't be your typical, inverted commas, you know, football demographic... Mm. They've been amazing with that. So, like, people like myself, like, as a a woman or, like, people from ethnic minorities that have, like, started going to Charlton. I think, yeah, it just has that feel about it. It really does. And I think the team that really embodied that for me was the Chris Powell team. I think that just the unity of everyone all together. And I think Mm. that is such a thing about Charlton. But, again, under curbs in the Premier League years is there's just a heart. There's a real heart at the club. And I think when... You know, every every football club's going to say that, of course, and I don't doubt that that's not true, but I just, there's something about Tom's fan base that is just, we're kind of, we're a bit mad, I think is the way to put it. Like, we are just so dedicated and so loyal to it. I mean, that the amount of, like, the drama and, like, the troubles that we've been through over the last, like, decade or two decades even, like, is insane. And the effort and the dedication that fans are in, not only in protesting or you know but still turning up to the games even when the team was just absolutely dire like you would not have wanted to be there like you wouldn't have wanted to waste your time and money on it but to you for, for Chong fans it was like but this is my club and I love them oh, well, I'll be here whether you know for, for better or for worse in a way uh, just like yeah especially during those times under Roland du where we were protesting the Yeah, just the level of dedication that was shown by fans just really proved to me how much of a kind of a family club we are, if that makes sense. (laughs) Because the amount of effort that people put in and the loyalty and just like the love that everyone had for each other and really the support was just crazy.
0: Well, I was going to come to this later. Let's do it now because it's such a such significant and kind of, uh, for, for, for the wrong reasons, a memorable time in Chartres history. And that is the Roland du Châtelet. How do I say it? Roland du
1: Châtelet. Yeah. Roland <laughs> du
0: Châtelet uh, era. So he was um, So a Belgian businessman. He owned Chartres between 2014 and 2019. And uh, he was quite simply an absolute disaster for Charlton, wasn't he? So he sacked Chris Powell, who, who you mentioned, club legend. I remember him making his England debut against Spain in 2001. Oh uh, he got you, uh, yeah, I remember uh, at Villa Park, also a uh, Wednesday night or something, when Sven, Sven Euron mm-hmm. first game, I think as manager, wasn't it? Um, but yeah, Charlton legend. Uh, he got the club up. Uh, it was in 2011, 2012, didn't he? got promoted. was, over, yeah,
1: uh, yeah, yeah.
0: From League One to the Championship with, with as you said, 100 points. Um, fantastic, you know, did a fantastic job. Just, Duchatelet came in. I'm going to struggle with that, aren't I? Duchatelet came in as uh, as Charlton's owner in, in 2014. And pretty much the first thing he did was sack Powell as manager, didn't he?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and then he just went on to make a series of erratic managerial appointments. Eight in four years, including hiring fellow Belgian uh, Jose Riga twice uh, and overseeing a relegation back to League One in 2016. Um, he yeah. basically turned the club into a bit of a laughing stock. And the fans reacted in kind. Uh, they threw plastic pigs onto the pitch during a... Joint pro- uh, protest with Coventry fans at a game at the Valley in October 2016. And in March of the same year, 2016, there was also another sort of similar protest where beach balls were thrown onto the pitch during a game be Middlesbrough. Mm-hmm. On a more serious note, a coalition against Roland uh, De- Châtelet fans group was formed, which mm-hmm. raised over more than £60,000 as part of a fight to remove him as owner. Uh, he did eventually sell up uh, to East Street Investments, uh, East Street Investment Group in November 2019. Which rather, which via rather complicated for that, then eventually sold the club up to um, Danish American businessman Thomas Sandsgaard, who you mentioned earlier in September twenty twenty, and he's been the owner ever since. Yeah, but that, yeah, that Roland du Châtelet period. I mean, I was observing it from afar, obviously, because it was mainly happening in League One, wasn't it? And um, it was getting reported on, but perhaps not as much as it should have been.
2: Yeah.
0: It just sounds absolutely horrendous. I mean, the protests sound funny, but obviously. Uh, must have been sort of heartbreaking as well. You've got the fans group being set up to 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 raise money to get rid of him. Do you, I mean you touched on it there? It Feels like it was a horrible period, but one that sort of cemented sort of the unity among Charl- Charlton's fans as well. Do you just want to talk about what it was like to be a fan during that period?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, to go back to the point I made earlier. Like, obviously, as you said, it was a terrible, terrible time for the club, and you know, on the pitch and off the pitch, it was heart- It was heartbreaking. It was literally like watching a loved one pass away is the only way that I can describe it. And it's, you know, it's going to happen. You know, it's just slowly edging towards that and you almost feel a bit helpless. But I think the good, the amazing thing about Charlton fans, I mean, this is probably at the point where I really remember this period. And like, it's quite unfortunate because obviously, you know, it's not very nice, but equally that was like the time in my life. I mean, I think I was about... I would have been about 14, 13, 14 when Roland took over. And obviously, so my whole teenage years... Yeah. I would follow charlton Home in a way religiously
0: would taught by him. And yeah Well, I was gonna crazy. say actually, I think the teenage years are the most important years in a football yeah. fan's life. It's when you really start to understand football, like understand the rhythms of it, and yeah. you just and you fall in love with your club at that point. As I said, when you're seven or eight playing with your Nintendo, you are slightly detached from it, and then and then you get to that teenage years and you sort of totally get it, and you really fall in love with it, and as you understand mm-hmm. the rhythms of everything. And it's the happiest time, I think, for most people as, as a football fan. But, yeah, for you, it was kind of tarnished because he had this awful owner in charge of your club.
1: Yeah, so then, obviously, like, as I said before, like it was kind of it was so, like, paradoxical because it was like, well, it's awful at the moment because his owner is quite literally running us into the ground. And he has no interest in the footballing side of things at all. He just sees it as a business. And even though we were losing millions of pounds a year, but that's another, that's another subject. But, yeah, on the one hand, you've got that, but... On the other hand, I had some of the best times following Trollen, especially away with my friends and my family. I met so many people and it was kind of like I fell in love with certain people that were playing at that time that still kind of emulated Trollen to me because they were so passionate. I think because the club were going through such a bad time because they were so passionate and they showed that they wanted to, you know, they were still trying as much as they could, despite Mm -hmm. the off field saga. It really meant a lot to the fans, and like there's players from that period, like one of them in my 11, um, Even though he joined, <coughs> excuse me, during this whole period, I loved him. And like there's p- players in that period that I will love my whole life because they tried so hard to bring us up, even though they were climbing up an absolute huge, huge mountain. Um, no, it was. It was an interesting time. I mean, obviously we got relegated in 2016. I yeah. mean, the first year, Roden took over. He kept well. He didn't keep us. I'm not going to give him that. But we stayed up. Um, and you know, that was when Jose Riga came in for Powell, and then had another season in the Championship. Then obviously went down the season after that. Um, and then we were in League One. And then for two years, and then in the third year obviously this is probably the best moment i've had as a trump fan again weird because it was under roland and everyone hated him but um obviously we (coughs) excuse me in our third year in league one back down there um we got to wembley we finished third in the playoff places um after having an, an amazing run at the end of the campaign i think you know, that that team, I mean, I, I could talk about it all day, but, like, the that team was incredible. You had the likes of, like, Josh Cullen, who he, he was on loan from West Ham. You had um Joe Rebo, you had Lyle Taylor, you had, like, all these amazing players, David Phillips, just all these really standout players that really wore their heart on their sleeve and really played for the shirt. And I think as a Charlton fan... Again, it sounds like a generic thing to say in football, but genuinely, like we can tell when players really care and when mm. they're really passionate and it's not just an act. And that team really embodied that for me. And it was just summed up at Wembley when <laughs> Patrick Bauer scored in the 94th minute to send us up to the championship. And yeah, poor Sunderland, they lost to Wembley again. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, they've done so, it's bizarre because, you know, there was the worst of times, you know. We were protesting. I didn't buy a season ticket for a while in protest. Like, people weren't attending. People were leaving games early. People were having arguments with each other, the boards. Like, people were having bickers left, right, and center, of the fan base. Obviously, we all came together, but at the same time, there were, it was fractured for people that weren't so bothered about. The protest They were like, well, "I'm just here to watch the football. Mm. I don't really care. I don't really want to get involved. Stop disrupting the game." There was there was a large amount of people saying that,
0: that happens a lot, doesn't it? When 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 yeah. when clubs when a, you know when when that sort of protest element happens at a club. I like know Newcastle. I think it was the case when Mike Ashley was there. Liverpool. I remember when Hicks and Gillette were owners and our fans are trying to get rid of them. You do have those fans who are like, look, I just want to turn up and watch the team. This is my one bit of leisure in a week. Yeah. it's crap, but it's all I've got. And I I don't want to turn this into like work. I work Monday to Friday. This is what I'm meant to be having fun. And yeah, it does create a really fractious dynamic, but an interesting one as well. You can kind of understand why the the non-protesters are
1: non-protesters. Yeah, 100%. And it was difficult because whilst you do hear that, at the same time, I think I mean I would make the point to them like, well, what do we do then? Because we can't just sit here and not do anything about it. Mm. So it's kind of like, unfortunately, it's just one of those things where I obviously I do understand people. You go to football for the football. You're not interested in the politics side of it. Yeah. That's totally fair enough. I feel like a lot of people do do that. But surely, I thought to myself, surely when the football's so bad, you're not going for it for that. Like you know, yeah. in, in the end. No one would, no one would have wanted to turn out to watch some of the Charlton teams that played under Roland because they were so lackluster and just so the serious lack of investment and like the recruitment was just all wrong. And it just, in the end, I think everyone, I think when when Roland did leave, even though there was a whole drama with the ESR to come, when Roland did leave, I think everyone was unified in good.
2: Yeah. Like there was
1: no one being like, oh well, you know we've wasted all this time protesting when he was going to go anyway or like, it doesn't matter who cares. Like, no, every, everyone unified and being like, thank God for that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> what, what were his motives? Was he just, like, was he trying his best, but was just absolutely terrible at it? Or was there something else going on there? Because no, no, as he I kept was... changing managers all the time. He wasn't putting money into the team, was he? I mean, it just right. seems like, a, it seems slightly baffling. What, why he even took over the club in the first place?
1: It's baffling because he, Yeah, in some ways, I wish I could tell you that it was because he was naive and then it would make, I think the protest would have been less angsty then because it would have just been a bit like, oh, mate, can you not do that? Like, you (laughs) know, trial and error kind of thing. But I think it's not necessarily that he was malicious. I'd like not to think, but obviously he took over he'd already owned Standardly Age, and he owned another club but i can't remember where it was now but he did own a network yeah. so his thing was okay i'm gonna add cholton in and the rest of the clubs can be a sort of feeder club to chalton and it's mad because at the time well, before, before ronan took over the, the owners previous to that um didn't have enough money so we you know, our pitch was an absolute state. Like, I don't know if you ever saw the Valley pitch in about 2012. It was absolutely dreadful. Like, no, like it was just a pure mud bath, and, and the seats were all fading pink because there was just no. You know, they'd run, they'd run out of money basically. So when Roland took over, we all like, had oh, happy days. This guy knows what he's doing. He's right. owned clubs before. Fun, fun, great, brilliant. Can't wait. And then um, obviously, when he took over, he sacked Chris Powell straight away. So that was kind of his way of saying, you know, I'm going to come in. And it's kind of, do you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me the other day when Hull City and they sat, I think they sat Grant McCann because he got them promoted and everything. And then he'd gone on a nice run of games. But then the new owner came in and said, no, I want my own guy. like yeah. you can go," And like, obviously that's worked out well for Hull because Obviously, Grant McCann had a good last few like results in his last couple of games, but obviously that wasn't reflected for the whole season. And then now they've stayed up. So it makes sense. But for us, obviously, like, Powell lost the seven quarters, sorry, of the FA Cup. We played away at Sheffield United. We played at Brown Lane and we lost. But that wasn't that day was not to do with Powell. It wasn't like, it was one of those things and no one was blaming him. But I think Roland saw that as a window of opportunity because he knew that that, he wanted his own people in. Uh So he took that, ran with it and sat Powell. So obviously there's some people in the fan base that were a bit like, well, like, you know, maybe it's a good thing he's going to bring in someone that they'll work better together and whatever. Obviously, for people like myself, and I feel like a majority of Tom fans were absolutely heartbroken. Like I can't even explain how like heart-wrenching that was. Because for me, how embodied everything it meant to be told, and not just because he played for us. Like during his managerial career as well, he just was so passionate, and you could tell he loved the club inside out, and he knew it inside out as well. And later on that season as well. So this is a classic example of what Ronan used to do. So he he was a businessman. I can't remember what he used to sell, but it was something to do with technology. And so I think he kind of thought, well, running a football club is like running a business. So I'm going to sell that our best assets and make some money. Bring in some people on the cheap that can still kind of do it, but we can, you know, we can kind of get by and then it'll be fine. So, what he did is he went and sold Jan Kermigan. I don't know if you've ever heard of Jan Kermigan, but, oh my gosh. So, he used to play for Leicester yeah, City. Well, he's in your
0: all-time 11 isn't he? He's, he's he is, One yeah. of your centre-floors in your all-time everything which I said, well, as yeah. I said, we'll come on to later, yeah.
1: <laughs> he um, So, he played for Leicester before us. I can't remember those there was a club in between. He definitely played for Leicester. And Leicester fans absolutely hated him because he, he I, think, I think he missed a penalty for them and they never forgave him since. <laughs> but So, when he came to us, he was just... You know, people call, you know, like Harry Kane's, like, Spurs uh, talisman or whatever. Like, oh, yeah. Jan Kermigan was Charlton's talisman through and through. Uh, no one, I think Lyle Taylor maybe got close to being like Jan, but no one, no one touches Jan, honestly. He is yeah. on top, the top of the pedestal. He was fantastic. And, like, his attitude, like, he was the kind of player that you would love to have in your team. But to have on the opposition team was an absolute pain. Like, you would absolutely hate him. He was the sort of person that would really wind you up. And, no, his his finishing was absolutely incredible. Yeah, so, Trial and Legends. So then, Ronan comes in and he sells Kermigan. He sells Kermigan, so I believe Bournemouth. And I think the next season or well, around that sort of time, he, but Kermigan came back with Bournemouth and got promoted at the Valley.
2: Oh, and, uh,
1: that's literally... going to suck. So even for that, I was like, <laughs> Roland, no, I like, yeah. don't like you for that point as yeah. it is. Um, and he did come back a couple of few times actually with Reading as well. He moved there afterwards yeah. and scored nearly scored against us. In fact, I think he might have scored actually. So yeah, that was heartbreaking. But my no the main point, he would sell all of our key players on the cheap. So like, I'm pretty sure like Dale Stevens, who used to play for Brighton, he went for basically nothing. Um, Michael Morrison, our centre-back, sold him for basically nothing. And instead he brought in all these players that had been playing in, in Belgium, like their second division. And then we were kind of like, with the greatest respect, it's not going to work. In the hmm. second tier of English football, you're not going to survive by bringing in players that, A, don't have the experience, but being in the nicest way possible you know they tried but they weren't good enough and Mm. it was kind of like from the get-go he was like it's my way or the highway I'm not going to spend the money and obviously there was multiple things going on throughout his tenure but there were rumors of him building hotels on the valley and like trying to like sell the ground so they could build flats and just basically just tried to asset strip it I think is the best way to sum it up so yeah as much as I, I wish it, it was from a place of naivety but actually now I'm recalling it I do think he he was never interested in in getting Charlton hmm. to be to be a good side I think he kind of wanted to just just make money out of it but in the end he, he really didn't so
0: yeah. And uh, I mean, you said it there, within what's mad as well, is within this period, uh, a lot of Charlton fans, certainly of, of your generation, have had one of their happiest moments and arguably their most happy moment watching yeah. Charlton. That was the 2019 League One player final at Wembley. So as he, you, you mentioned there, you played Sunderland. Um, they took the lead through a, a really mad own goal from uh, Nabi Sarr after oh,
1: yeah.
0: basically <laughs> a, a weirdly overhit back pass, wasn't it, that went yeah. in? Charlton equalised via Ben Purrington before Patrick Bowers, he said, got the win in the 94th minute with virtually last kick of the game. And yeah, I'm just, I'm just imagining it must have been an incredible experience for you because of A, what you achieved, you know, getting promotion back yeah. to the championship via a playoff win at Wembley, the manner of the win, given it was, you know, this dramatic late winner, the fact, as I said, it came during an otherwise really dark time for the club and the fact you had a, another great, a club great, as Manager Lee Bowyer was, was manager at the time, so I think you, you you said it already. Probably the happiest, your happiest afternoon as a child, and found that one in was it May 2019,
1: wasn't it? It was, yeah. And I was in my second year of uni, and I oh, just remember like getting on the tube in the morning, and I just thought, really quietly confident. But I didn't want I didn't tell anyone that, that's myself because <laughs> so I always like, yeah. jinx it, and yeah, yeah. I, I kind of I think because of the way that we got into the tie, even though Sunderland had players like Max Power, Will Grig, like Aidan McGeady, like all these like big name players, I was just like, we've been playing too well. Like our the semi-finals, um, the playoff semis against Doncaster, um, we we played away first and we won 2-1. We went 2-0 up in like back to back really quickly. In the first half, I think, and yeah, we just we looked incredible. And then the Doncaster came to the valley. Um, that was a different story. We looked, we looked shaky, I think, because we knew we knew we were so close. We went one nil up though, like literally within the first five minutes, because um, cause Christian Beanett scored a beautiful, beautiful free kick. and um, it was the first time that the valley had sold out for years as well. So the occasion was just amazing. Um, and then Doncaster really got back into the game, and it ended up going to penalties. And um, what I always love is um, when it went to penalties. Obviously, I think well, Navi saw missed, and John Marquis also scored. Um, sorry, missed for Doncaster, so it went to sudden death. And I just remember, like, I knew it was sudden death. I'd clocked on. but And I was speaking to other people around the ground. Not all of them had recognised it. It, was, it was gone to sudden death. So um, Tommy Rowe, I think it was, at Doncaster, stepped up. And he put his penalty wide. So I've gone absolutely ballistic, right? <laughs> and my friend next to me goes, what are you doing? Like, we've still got more penalties. The guy said, no, we haven't. We've got to Wembley. And obviously... Charlton had not been to the New Wembley. The last time they went to Wembley was before I was born in 1998.
0: The famous... Oh, the famous... The, the other Sunderland. the other Sunderland game. Yeah, the more yeah, famous Sunderland
1: game. Yeah, I know, of course
0: Sunderland.
1: They must hate Charlton, yeah. <laughs> <Famous laughs> yeah. Um, no, no, they hate us now. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so then that, that was amazing. I think getting to Wembley itself was incredible yeah. because, again, from my generation, never done that. And then obviously got there. And it was just... I can't. I can't even describe it. I think it was just such a blur. Like, and I think that all my friends have said this since as well. It it went so fast. Yeah. Like, even though you'd think like it would go quite slowly because you're scared or whatever. No, it went so quickly. And I remember when I was sat on the tier, here, um, and I was on. If you were looking at the goal, we scored our uh, winning goal, and I was on the left hand side. And um, <coughs> excuse me. And I had a really good view. And Josh Parker got fouled. I say fouled in inverted commas because I don't think it was a foul, but I'm not complaining. Um, And he went down. And I looked at my dad, he looked at me, and my dad was like, this would be a good time to score, wouldn't it? Because the clock was, you know, ticking past 92nd, 93rd minute. And I thought, yeah, it would be a good time to score, wouldn't it? Because I thought the idea of, you know, extra time and then penalties could could not have done it. But even though, Sunderland hadn't been at the races, really, to be honest. And like, speaking to their fans afterwards, they said that they just didn't turn up. They looked like mm. they, they didn't want it. And we, we wanted it so much more than them. But yeah, so Josh Parker won, won his free kick on uh, on the edge, of, just outside the edge of the box, on the left-hand side, just in front of me. And Josh Cullen uh, took it. And then it kind of just floated in and around the penalty area and you could just see a kind of like gathering of people and at the time you couldn't you couldn't really tell like who it was I thought it was Jason Pierce at first saw the captain at the moment but it wasn't and it, it was Patrick Bauer and basically the ball had rebounded and Patrick stuck his big German leg out <laughs> and punched it with his foot into the bottom of the net and honestly I can't I think loads of people have like retweeted it since and just described it as like one of the best like like football limbs if you'll call it that yeah. like since I was going to say like, limbs it, it, the limbs must have been amazing Wembley, it yeah. was incredible and I remember I kind of just stood there and although obviously I was celebrating but I just froze and I was just like oh my god like, did that just happen we've just scored the last yeah. minute this is not Cheltenham. like Cheltenham yeah. don't do this we don't score last minute goals at Wembley like it's just bizarre so but yeah that 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 was a really good day Josh Cullen he's dug the cross out the Keurig and points out
2: Patrick Bauer. These Charlton players write the legend. Wembley. So cruel for Sunderland again. They will not want to see this place again. Absolutely stunned, but Wembley's a place for winners. Charlton Athletic, a club which has been in chaos off the pitch, is in harmony on it. And these fearless young men are taking this proud club back to the championship.
0: An amazing Wembley experience, which, yeah, despite all the crap that was going on then, it was, it was obviously fantastic. So, yeah, just to summarise again. So, Roland de, Ch- de Châtelet, I am really struggling with that name. That's going to be the last time I say it. Roland de Châtelet. It's
1: called him Roland at this it's point, called him honestly. Roland, yeah, it's probably
0: easier. It doesn't deserve to be uh, given his full name on this podcast. Yeah, sold up to East Street Investments in, in November 19, eight, no, mm. November 2019. I'm not going to go, on, not going to try and go through what happened there because I've read it two or three times. So it doesn't make any sense, I'll be honest. But it sounds very, very complicated. But that ultimately mm-hmm. led to the club being sold to, uh, to Thomas Sandsgaard, who's a, a Danish American businessman in September mm-hmm. 2020. He's the owner now. Uh, and the team are currently 15th in League One under, uh, you mentioned him earlier, Johnny Jackson, another uh, Charlton legend, another former player at the club. Mm-hmm. Um, 15th as it's in League One, beat Rotherham 1 0 at the weekend. How are things at the moment? How's following chart at the moment feel? Better, I presume, it had been under under Roland.
1: When, so when Sangard took over, I think it was just so refreshing to have an owner that actually was visible and that actually mm. wanted to communicate with fans and that was interested in, in the club itself. It didn't, didn't just see it as a business thing and, you know, it felt that it was important to build that community within the club again. You know, that's all we've been asking for for the last 10 years and to have that again is, is fantastic. But yeah, and then, so, you know, we went into the summer, we thought, oh, this is going to be great. We've all got season tickets, everyone's all sorted, ready. And um, the season starts, and I just, I honestly, still to this day, I mean, there's obviously reasons behind it, but it was so disappointing and this whole, this whole season has been really disappointing and I, I, I like hate that. to say that but it, it right. really has. Um, there have been shades, don't get me wrong, there were shades in about November, December, which I'll go into that were brilliant but we started the campaign and we got a 1-0, no sorry, we got a 0-0 draw for Wednesday at the Valley and we thought, okay great, they've just been relegated, you know, a big club, that was probably quite a good test, no worries, sounds good. And then as summer, we'd let a couple of players go, we'd let Chucks and UK go to Birmingham. Who was our striker? We let people go to like Andrew Shinney, one of our midfielders, who I thought was really good. It was quite surprised he didn't get offered any contract. And there were just a few people that got let go or that were brought in that I was a bit unsure about. But in the balance of things, I thought no, it's still going to be fine. And got into the season and like we were losing week in week out. We lost to Oxford. We lost to Lincoln. We lost to Accrington Stanley. Uh, we lost to Bolton with uh, just all these teams and so many of them have ended up doing the double over us this season. Anyway, so we've lost all these games and we I think we were like 23rd in the league, which is the lowest position that we've been in our recent history, obviously. And the thought of going down to League Two just does not, you know, yeah. that's not saying that we would accept just a fan base. So it got to... By November, or October time, and you know it was. I remember because it was near my birthday, so it was just before my birthday. Our Dragons got sacked, and I do, I do feel quite sorry for him. So I do think he is a good manager. You know, he's done it with Stunthorpe, He did it with Southampton. Mm. I think the the capabilities probably were there, but unfortunately, I do think it's a combination of he didn't get the team that he wanted, but also he. I think he'd had it. Like mm. I know that sounds horrible. I hate saying that, but I think he'd been out the game for too long that he'd kind of lost his touch a bit, and uh, I think that's probably what happened. So yeah, and then Johnny Jackson, who was assistant manager at the time to Nigel, obviously used to be our captain, played for us. um He took over as interim manager um so it's kind of like Oli Gunnar Solskjaer kind of vibe there it's kind of like you know your hero and the yeah. legend that the club takes over which you know can go one or two oh, ways very, I was going
0: to say very much so you don't want it to go down the Solskjaer route. no
1: you don't exactly <laughs> you know god yeah, yeah. No, thank you but um no so he took over and everyone was kind of like ooh, like you know it's because he'd taken over as interim manager before caretaker manager sorry and, you know, he'd done a really good job, got us wins before, whatever. But then obviously someone came over and took over. But I think a lot of the fan base are saying, well, Johnny's probably at the point now where he thinks, you know, I've done all my coaching badges. If not now, when? And I think he kind of went in with that mindset and you could tell. And the, the best thing about it is because Johnny Jackson's so, I don't know, I think he's, he's a proper people person, you know, and I think he's proper, like very... I wouldn't say like pally because that makes it sound like there's he's not professional, but like he has a good rapport with the players and the staff and just mm. everyone at the club. Obviously, he's been there for so long; he just gets it, and he gets the fan base as well, which obviously really helps. So, I think, <coughs> excuse me, when he took over, I think the players really wanted him to get it, and you could feel that. I mean, you mm. had you had the fans wanting him to get it because we we'd had enough of having managers that. You know, apart from Boya, obviously Boya doesn't get come under this umbrella. But you know, no disrespect to Nigel dragons, but he he's not been a Trump fan. He'd not played for Chol, and like he's not part of the fabric of our club. And our, our best managers come from being ex players, like Curbs, Boya, and Al Jackson. So it was kind of like it was written in the stars in a way. Um, but when he took over, we just won all these games in a row. And I went I went up to Sunderland away, and we hadn't won in ages. I thought we're gonna get absolutely talled here about 4-0. It's my birthday weekend, but it's fine. We're just we're not here for the football, it's okay. And um so I went the first time I've been to the stadium of light. And we ran we just ran riot. It was absolutely brilliant. And I've never said like that was a proper we won one nil. It was a proper away performance. It was just brilliant. It was so like battling. Everyone was going for every ball, and the, whereas in the the last few weeks, like the players' heads were just down. It just looked like a completely lost cause. And yeah, we won. And just from then on, it, it he just carried on. We just, we won against Plymouth. We drew with Rotherham. Obviously, that was when they were right at the top of the league, and they were on like a crazy winning streak you know we got these really great results and went on this like winning run and obviously that eventually inevitably it comes to an end right and but by this point Jackson had been appointed the manager so that was great and I think as much as I'm still and I'm, I'm still like this now I just want it to go well so badly that I just really hope it doesn't mess up but we'll see anyway but because um, he deserves, he deserves for it to go well. Like the amount of time he's he spent at the club and dedicated to it, he deserves to have like a really good managerial yeah. experience here. Like it, it just makes sense.
0: Absolutely, well, fantastic. Yeah, as I said, fifteenth at the moment, not great, but as you say, it seems like you're on the up after a really bad start. And uh, yeah, yes, of as of recording, uh, we were recording what, three days after you beat Rotherham one 0 so that was that was a positive result. And it's just interesting how you speak about. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the sort of, the, the, the record of success that former Charlton players have had as Charlton manager, I mean, Chris Powell, and obviously Johnny Jackson now as well, Lee Bowyer as well, of course, as well with that Wembley win. And it's kind of like a, a chicken and egg thing. Is is there something about Charlton giving players a chance, so many players a chance, and then obviously a decent number of them being successful or something <laughs> about them, As you know, it, a bit of a cliche, but it feels like there is something in it at Charlton. Those players getting the club, and that being why they are successful. I mean, how, how do you sort of view it? It does sound like to you it means so much. I guess it's the case for any fan base, but it means so much when you've got great former players as manager. It seems like something that really matters to you. That you're not yeah, willing fair. them to do to do well, but you, <laughs> you just kind of want them there anyway because it just it's that it's all about that connection.
1: Yeah, I think like obviously they make up the fabric of the club and the history. So what? Yeah. Like, of course, you then all you want is someone that emulates your club, leading your team. I think, mm. I think in terms of like putting trust in managers, I think it's difficult because, you know, like in the top six in the Premier League, you get Conte ducking and ducking and darting from Chelsea to Tottenham, and then like yeah. Mourinho's flying around all over the place. And it's just like, I don't feel like you can connect with managers like that. I mean, obviously, I think Klopp's the exception. I definitely think he can. Yeah, Probably the same with yeah, yeah. Pep City, but... I do think there is obviously the, the habit of the managerial like merry-go-round where you're just like, oh, well, that guy's free, so we'll pick him up. And it doesn't mm-hmm. really mean anything. And I think, especially with lower league clubs, with, definitely with Charlton, it's always been, we don't just want some nobody that's going to come in that's, you know, they might be experienced, like Atkins was, but they don't understand what it's like to be Charlton. You know, it, the club's been through a hard time. I mean, not just from... Losing the Valley back in back in the nineties, or having to sorry back in the eighties and having to rebuild it to go back to there, having to play at Sellers Park, having to play Upton Park, and then you know that tiny portion of the fan base that did hold on to see it go to the Premier League and hit those heights and had just how much that meant because of how low we'd been before, and then to have gone back down. And then to go back up again and then to go back down to be on this yo-yo experience i think unless you have kind of know that then you just can't really click with this with the fan base and i don't know that's just how i see it but i do think that there is something special about having a manager that's played for you and that has worn the shirt and that has fought for you before there's just something symbolic mm. about that and it just clicks and I don't think you get that with
0: other managers. Yeah. Did you say earlier that you, you, the stand you sit in is the Alan Kerbishley stand? It is
1: the Alan stand. I mean, stands. I
0: wasn't aware it was called that. I just think that's, that's wonderful because he is like my yeah. charter manager. You know, like he's yeah, the sure. one I, you know, my age. And, you know, obviously you, 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 you were a kid. You know, we were saying before you were three years old when you went to your first game. He was manager. But that period, I mean, Charlton win the Premier League between 2000 and 2007. He was the manager. You finished... Uh, so seven consecutive seasons and you finished seventh in 2003, 2004, which should you know, have been
1: higher the, than that as well. Yeah, but, indeed. Yeah. In,
0: you know, in the in the Premier League and this is the, you know, this is the era of players like Dean Kiley, Chris Powell, obviously Rich, Richard Rufus, Mark Fish, Mark Kinsella, Graeme Stewart, Klaus Jensen, Sean Bartlett. I mean, I just remember that Charlton team as the off the noughties, the early to mid noughties, just being a really, really good team. And obviously Alan Kerbysh was the manager.
2: Yeah.
1: And yeah,
0: just that sense as well, as soon as he left, it was all going to kind of fall apart. And he left, I think, at the end was it in 2006, I think he. Yeah, he, uh, and
1: then I can't, I'm trying to think, there was multiple managers in between though. I know Ian Dowie and Alan Pardew. Yeah, well, Pardew was, as well, but yeah, Pardew was, the, was ma- the one that saw us go
0: down. Yeah, he was there when you went down in 2007. But that is just lovely at kirby He's got a stand named after him. He's obviously, obviously yeah. you were too young to really remember that period. You obviously know, you know, you were being taken to the games by your mum and dad. But I think that's fantastic that he's got a stand named after him. He's obviously yeah. a really important figure in Charles' history, isn't he?
1: Definitely. I mean, I think, I'm pretty sure that happened in the summer because my... I think my dad, he, he was through his fanzine. I think he was trying to make the point, like, why is this guy not got a stand yet? Like, this mm. is insane. You know, he, he highlights, completely embodies Charlton's most successful, arguably most successful period. And you just think, how has this guy not been honoured? But that's just a sign of the people that we've been owned by the last like, couple of decades, is that they've not yeah. cared about the history of the club. And they just don't recognise just how important kerbs was and that's what's so refreshing on the sound guard is um kerbs has a um regular spot on Charlton tv so like obviously during lockdown they do a live stream and then they yeah. have a half time like show and a pre-match show and whatever and post-match stuff and alan kerbs on there and then you've got scott minto as well obviously works for sky and he does yeah. talk sport as well actually but obviously he's played for charlton yeah, yeah
2: um
1: and yeah just, and then they have loads of charlton guests on there as well so yeah kerbs is uh Kerbs has finally got the recognition he deserves now, I think.
0: <laughs> so, Kerbs, the TV presenter, well, what's, what's that like? Is he good at it? He he's always came across, I'm trying to be polite here, a, a little bit dry. I can't imagine being the most charismatic of hosts.
1: Right, you say that, okay. <laughs> but, at, well, so I was at work the other day and there was this piece. So, we get, we get emails through like press releases, right? And yeah. There was one, the Pally Power one, and I clicked on it and it said, you know, I think it was, was it Jamie? No, not Jamie Carragher. Jeremy Redknapp, and it was like him talking about NFTs. Yeah. And then it was like, and consult Alan Kirbishly about NFTs. And I was like, pardon. So I like <laughs> clicked on it. And basically, Curves has done this series. I think it's called The Pundits with Paddy Power. And like they're all the, the kind of like ex soccer Saturday boys. And like they it, honestly, you will have to watch it, put it in YouTube after this because I'll it's it hilarious. Herbs, should have gone into acting he was wasted as a football manager honestly oh, like that good genuinely he's so good and like it, it you know it goes over to him and he's like he's selling lfts like but he gets confused and he thinks it's some like physical thing he's <laughs> like but i went over to five men donkers and printed it out on his inkjet like all this oh, sort fantastic. of stuff Fantastic, so oh, brilliant yeah you
0: have to watch it but yeah it turns out he's actually quite charismatic there you go well fair play Kev's I take it back I know. That's I will check that out yeah no he just yeah I mean seven consecutive seasons in the Premier League finishing as a seventh in in 2004 he did a yeah. he did a brilliant job there I think it yeah and I'm, I'm I'm delighted that Charlton have recognized it by by giving him that stand and also making him a bit of a tv star as well so that's great um Sasha, you've been absolutely brilliant. Um, we've been talking for a while and we do need to talk about Her Game 2 as well. So let's, let's get on to it now. So so to explain, Her Game 2, the voluntary organisation founded in May 2021, so last May, May last year, it's run by female football fans, four female football fans, and it seeks to foster an ethos in football in which women are welcomed and respected equally. And that is done via awareness, education, research, content creation, campaigning against sexism, especially online and creating a network of club representatives. And you are Charlton's Her Game 2 representative.
1: Right.
0: So do you want to talk about how and why you get involved and what it means for you to be Charlton's Her Game 2 representative?
1: Yeah, so I heard about the campaign when it launched because I, luckily I followed um, the girls that founded it. Uh, called Kaz and Lucy they're they're brilliant Um, they're both Crystal Rovers fans actually through and through they're absolutely crazy they follow them all over the country like I do with Charlton so yeah um, and I'm luckily obviously when I found out about the campaign um, and straight away I just felt like it really resonated with me because I don't think anyone had ever spoken to me before about whether I faced sexist abuse at football, but ever. Obviously, this is before I started my job at Tort School, so it was purely from a fan perspective. But yeah, I don't think anyone had ever asked me or like I'd ever really thought about it. I mean, obviously, I'd experienced sexist abuse, but I didn't know the scale that it affected women in football. I just, honestly, like, obviously I knew it definitely still was rife, but I didn't realise quite the extent and the campaign, obviously, have surveyed, like, I think it was around 400 female football fans and asked them whether they'd experienced sexist abuse or seen it. And 91.3 or something percent of them had said that they've seen it or witnessed it themselves, whether that's online or actually at games and i think it was like 65 percent have experienced it themselves which is a huge number it's huge and i remember like obviously when they launched the campaign it was on fa cup final day last year and um they had done a whole like compilation video of all the the And it was all the comments that they have yeah, been seen that. Sort of, of passing it across them, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, the, all the classic, like, get back to the kitchen and make me a sandwich. Or, like, the, the kind of, you know, football's a man's game. Mm. Like, you know nothing. You do it for male attention. Or, or everything you can imagine. And I just thought, this is something I have to get involved with. Because this is my experience. And, like, I, I'm doing myself a disservice if I don't get on this. And uh, I try and get involved. And... You know, work with them to help stomp out sexism and misogyny in the game because it's too many women's experience. And I think it actually serves as, an, as a hindrance to football, that it, mm. it, obviously. That Absolutely, it, because yeah. how, like, what are you meant to say to, to a father and a mother that want to take their daughter to a game? You're not going to want to, are you? Because they'll think, yeah, but what if they receive sexist abuse because it's so common? Um, and yeah, so back in. October when I first like, was getting into working at TalkSport, I thought, yeah, this is something I want to cover. So I spoke to Kaz and Lucy and it was kind of like, I said this song the other day, it was like speaking to friends I've known for years because your experiences are so similar and you can really kind of hmm. like resonate with what, everything that they're saying. And it, you're just like, wow, like, I feel for the first time as a like female football fan that's experienced sexist abuse, because of football just because i just because i have a footballing mm. opinion i've never felt like i had a voice with that and i never had someone that i felt like i could talk to about it and i think that's the key thing and why i'm so proud to be the Tottenham ambassador is because we're giving women a platform to say you can tell us if something goes on and either you, we don't you don't act on it you don't have to but equally if you want to get it sorted out and so this never happens again and report it properly then we can help you and just talking about it and you know dealing with it together i think is so important and honestly like the i'm kind of like massively taken aback i'm I i'm not really but I, I am like by the reaction from Charlton fans and i'm talking guys as well as as women they've just been so supportive and they've just been like this is something that it should have been done a long time ago like this partnership should have been mm-hmm secured a long time ago but you know I'm just I'm just buzzing that it's it's done it doesn't matter that it took a while but it's just so important that we're taking the steps in the right direction you know like any form of discrimination it's not going to be it's not going to disappear overnight right but it's better than sitting on your hands and not doing Mm. anything about it and I think that's just the type of person I am I don't I don't I like to sit my head above the parapet and I will be passionate and I will Start up for things I believe in because otherwise, you know, what's what's
0: the point? So yeah. does that mean if if P- you being Charlton representative, does that mean if people suffer racist, uh, not racist, sorry, sexist abuse, <laughs> either the Valley or our Charlton fans who maybe suffer it away games, that they can come to you and sort of report it through you, and you can because yeah. I know Charlton officially backed this campaign as well. Are they? Yes. You can work with the club then to help them and resolve those issues and yes. bring them um, into the public and where those things like that.
1: Yeah, so her game two, when I told them, because <laughs> I kept, like, using Twitter to kind of, like, lobby children to be, like, hello, like, can we do a partnership, please, kind yeah. of thing. And, and I wasn't even trying to be, like, side I can be that I necessarily wanted to be the ambassador. I was just, like, I think the club should partner with them because, you know, teams like Brentford, Leeds, and, you know, bearing in mind the campaign is only a year old. They partnered with over 100 clubs, mm. right? So, like, including Millwall. So I was kind of saying to them, like, you know, this is something that you need to get involved with and you mm. should be getting involved with. And, you know, since then, obviously, when I told Cousin Lucy that this is what I was doing, they were like, well, when the they do want a partner, if they do, then, like, would you mind being our ambassador? Because obviously, you feel like you connect with the campaign. I was like, yeah, completely. Mm. Like, would be amazing. Um, and obviously, because I know so many of myself, but, like, my like mum my and my cousin and my friends have all received sex abuse at football. So... Yeah, I was like, absolutely, that would suits me. I absolutely want to do that. And yeah, soon enough, the club got in touch with me and it's kind of just snowballed from there, really. And I did a, um, I've, now we have like a working group. So the club announced their par- partnership officially on there, like did a press release, you know, with the whole thing. And then now we have like a working group. So that has people from the club. So you've got the owner's um, partner and business partner, Raylan. Um, and you've got like other women that work across um, the, the, from Charlton women as well. We've got Andrea, who's a uh, media officer who's on board, we've got Tom Rubichot, who's like the commercial um, manager, so just I'm sorry, communication manager, I have to say. Um, and so from their side, and then you've got myself, and then we've opened it up to Charlton fans to say, they don't have to be women either. Like they could be men. Like it, you know. It's this is this is all about equality, right? So yeah. I'm like the more the merrier with this sort of thing. Like I, the more ideas, and then the, the better to kind of try to stamp out sexism and make the valley a nicer place for women to go. Because yeah, and like obviously there's short term and long term things that we're aiming towards. But just for now, it's just letting women know, you know, you can contact this number, and whether that's during the game or after the game because sometimes you can come away from it and think in the moment you don't think about it and then afterwards mm. you're like actually that didn't sit well for me at yeah, all
2: absolutely. Yeah. so
1: then you should feel like you can have a place to report it so yeah it's all I think for now it's about raising awareness and implementing those first couple of steps of the, out, the, the outlet for people to go to and then as we move on you know, I've said to people, you don't have to be part of the working group to give us ideas. If you have an old mm. one or two ideas, just shoot them to me and we'll raise it and we'll go from there. So, yeah, it's been it's been really, really good. The club have covered it really well. And I think they're doing, the uh, guy who produces the programme got in touch with me and they're doing like a four-page spread on it. So oh, it's excellent. brilliant. They're, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, really, they're really going for it and I really appreciate it.
0: That's really good. I mean, how... How bad has it been for you? I mean, you know, we were talking earlier about Charlton being, you know, the nice fr- family club, has a friendly atmosphere. But mm. even within that, then, have you experienced it at the Valley? Has it mainly been at away games? Has it been kind of incredibly overt or has it been a bit more subtle? Uh, the sort of stuff yeah. you've been getting, what's the kind of mix? And I guess you're being the age you are as well. A lot of it's probably coming online as well, isn't it? I guess via mm-hmm. sort of, uh, social media.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. So as I say, like, you know, the fan base, I wouldn't be a Tom fan if I didn't feel like i that, you know i fit i, I fit it in mm. or you know my overwhelming majority of my experiences at football have been nothing but brilliant and i'm very thankful for that because i know that's not the experience of a lot of the women in the campaign but yeah unfortunately like there's and most of it's been online there has been stuff in person i mean i've had literally like i remember i think it was a Colchester away, and i was 14. And I used to hang around with, like, a group of, of guys that was, were from um, Ramsgate. And they were my really close friends. I, I was, like, going to football with them and stuff. I was like, bye, mum and dad. I'm going to go with my friends now, kind of thing. So I was hanging around with them. And um, I remember there were these two guys. And they must have been in their 20s, right? Bearing in mind I was a teenager. Yeah. And they looked at me and they said, get your out. What the hell? To insinuate, you know. Um. So, and I remember at the time, I looked at them and I just, I I don't even know how I reacted I think I just looked at them blankly and then just kind of looked away and it was again it was only until I left and I was like that wasn't right I mean number one you're talking to a girl under the age of 16 that's disgusting not right at all Mm. Uh, but also even if I was the age I was now and someone said that to me that's not Mm. right and there's been stuff on social media like if I don't know, like, if it, it, again, it's kind of like what Kaz had. Like, I mean, she originally started the campaign because of a bout of sexist abuse she'd received on Twitter, and she was like, I've had enough, like, enough is enough, as he's saying about this. So, yeah, like, there have been things where, like, she, she'd got sexist abuse purely because of her footballing opinion, right? And so, same happened to me. I, I think, I was, I wouldn't say I was looking for trouble, I say I was kind of, because I did tweet about Crystal Palace. But that doesn't leave me. That doesn't mean that. Okay, you can come and argue with my opinion completely. Yeah. I'm very open. I, I, you know, I did politics for a degree. I, I love a debate. You know, like um, it's not that. But
2: yeah. I
1: think they use it as a prime target to be sexist and to mm-hmm. be that they won't talk about my opinion whenever people criticise me. It's. You're a girl, like what do you know, kind yeah. of thing, and like comments about my appearance that like guys would not get. That. If if I was a man and tweeting that, like, I would not have got the same comments about from that tweet. And I remember the the one thing that really sticks out in my mind actually is, and I never replied to this guy because I just thought, do you know what, like you're not, it's not worth it. You're not worth my energy. But I was talking to another female chunk fan about sexism, um, and I can't. I don't think it was anything like two and Dez and we were just talking about, say, comments we got at games or whatever. And this guy, he replied to me, he was a Charm fan. And um, what makes me feel quite ill was the fact that he got about 30 likes on the tweet. So, and I haven't looked at it since. I saw that he got loads of likes and I left it that, and I haven't looked since because it, what good is it going to do for me to look at it again, mm. you know? And he would basically replied saying, "Ang me, and saying well, I don't really know why you're complaining about sexist abuse because you haven't been raped or sexually abused, have you? So it's not as bad, so why are you moaning? Bloody hell. And that got quite a lot of support. Jeez. And so that's why from that, that really spurred me on, I think, not just that, but, like, that was a big part of me thinking this is too accepted in football. Mm. And even within a club like Charlton, which is very family orientated and very nice and very welcoming. If it's like that here, God knows what it's like. Yeah. As well. So he was
0: a Charlton fan as well.
1: He was. Yeah. Bloody
0: hell. That's absolutely yeah. Well. I mean, if any club, it's unacceptable. That's absolutely horrendous. Yeah. Um, yeah no, it's just it's just so grim, and I think one thing that doesn't help is that just Twitter that just doesn't take abuse seriously. I mean, I've reported racist abuse um I yeah, haven't sure. had any for a while, but I've, I've had some in the past and i've I've reported it to them, and they just simply don't take it seriously no. and it just doesn't help. It really doesn't help because it allows people to think they can get away with it no. um and I guess one other thing as well in terms of sort of in game if you want to call it that in game discrimination in game racism in game sexism, I guess it's really important for for those who aren't receiving it, but witnessing it to, to comment as well. I mean, I, I, you know, I take that responsibility on my shoulders. I, I haven't done enough. I've been at grounds, you know, as a Liverpool fan at games, home and away, heard sexist abuse. Not a lot of it, mm-hmm. but I've heard it and, and not said anything because I don't want to
1: But I think, yeah, we're gu- I think we're all guilty of that. Yeah. we've and got People need to speak uh, out,
0: don't they? You've got to yeah. stand up for people. You've got to stand up for what's right. And I think it's up to people who aren't receiving abuse, but hearing it to, to speak yeah, out out, isn't it? I think.
1: I think like also even getting involved with her game too, like obviously there is that voice in your head that's like, you're going to get abused from this. Like, is this something Mm. you want to open up yourself to? Because, you know, there's days where I can get online abuse and i just laugh at it. And I'm like, well, you're just, your profile picture is like a footballer. Like, I'm not going to take you seriously, (laughs) like go away. And then there's times where, you know, if you're not in particularly good headspace yourself, that could really affect you. And so I was kind of thinking like, mm, do I want to leave myself open to this? But the, like, and then I was just like, no, like, this is the whole point is that women have been made to feel, and like anyone else that's faced discrimination in football for other reasons, have been made to feel like they don't have a voice and they don't have the right to speak out about it. And that's yeah. what's categorically wrong with it. And that's what the whole point is. That's the whole point is that we're stopping people feeling like they can't report this sort of thing and get it yeah. solved, you know?
0: Absolutely. No, it's great. And yes, if people want to find out more, they can visit Her Game 2's website, which is www.hergame2.co.uk. And yeah, all the details are there's a mission statement, contact details, Initiatives and all, and I think there's details for all the representatives there. so you being Charlton's, I've got to say, I'm delighted. One of my really good friends, Rupert, is Liverpool's uh, representative as well. I know yeah, really well. She's, she's
1: great, she's brilliant,
0: yeah, she's fantastic. We have a we have a pint pre game quite often. I haven't seen her in a while because she's sort of busy with work and stuff, but now she's, yeah. she's great, so I'm delighted. She's Liverpool's representative. Um, Tash, you've been absolutely brilliant, been speaking for ages. You're still in the office. I want to make sure you can get home <laughs> soon and and. Put your feet up after a long day and, and have, a, have a drink and a bit of food. Before yeah. we do that, um, let's go through a couple of things I always do at the end of this podcast. The first is we've, we've, um, we've teased it a few times. Let's finally get into it your all time Charlton 11. So, for anyone who hasn't listened to this podcast before, when guests come on, ask them to pick an all time 11 based on the best 11 players they've seen for their club during their time supporting their club. So there's not going to be a lot of those Kirbishly players in in uh, Tash's team. I know
1: I'm... this. It was hard because I did yeah. debate putting them in there, but I thought, I, but I don't. That my memory of them isn't good now. Yeah, so, you were yeah. very
0: young. Yeah, you were a kid. You were playing on your Nintendo. You didn't really watch <laughs> them. So <laughs> there's no there's none of Alan Kirvishley's legends in this team. But let's go through it because yeah. we've got some some really good players in there. And as I said, one I want to ask you about in particular. So it's in a 442 formation. Your goalkeeper is Dylan Phillips. Your back four is Royce Wiggins, Patrick Bauer, Joe Gomez, and Chris Solly. Your midfield is Adam Ola-Lukman, Joe Aribo, Johnny Jackson, of course, the current manager, mm-hmm. Johan berg Goodmanson, uh, who you mentioned earlier as well. He's the fourth midfielder. And up front, Darren Ben and uh, the legend, that is, Jan Kermigan. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll let you sort of pick out any players you want to speak about uh, shortly. But before you we, before we do that, I do want to ask you about Joe Gomez, because as a Liverpool fan, um, I love Joe. He's absolutely brilliant. Just to give a bit of background on him. So he's from Catford. South London boy as well. Cat for very near near me as well. I know it well. Joined Chance Academy age 10. He made his senior debut in a 4-0 League Cup victory over Colchester at the Valley in August 2014. Uh, 24 appearances and 18 starts in his first full season at the club. at Right back and centre back. Joined Liverpool for £3.5 million in June 2015 when Brendan Rodgers was manager. And he's been brilliant for us. Uh, absolutely exceptional player, centre-back and right-back. And him and Virgil van Dijk were forming an absolutely phenomenal partnership in, in sort 2018-2019 of when, when Jurgen Klopp was really, really forming this, that, that great Liverpool team. The one that actually went on to win the European Cup against uh, Spurs in Madrid. But the problem for Joe is just being dogged by injuries throughout his time at Liverpool. And he's really now been usurped by Joel Matip at at centre-back alongside Van Dijk. And Joel Matip is outstanding as well. But yeah, brilliant player and he's in your team. Uh, Yeah, please talk to me about Joe Gomez. How good was he for Charles? Because he wasn't actually there for that long ultimately, was he?
1: He wasn't. And that is such a shame. But luckily, again, this is the period where uh, it was the second season Roland had been owner. So like, yeah, he was obviously made his debut at the age of 17 and then Mm. just never really came outside, to be honest. Like he was fantastic like just head and shoulders above everyone else and even like the senior centre backs at Charlton at the time he just he just looked he just slotted right in like you know those players where you would not think they were their age at all like he just looked so poised and hmm. so calm on the ball like you could really trust him even if there was a striker literally coming full pace at him he just would never look but like phase and he'd be hmm. so just very level-headed, like he never really got in trouble. I don't remember him getting like sent off for really, it, to be fair. But I can remember him just being very calm. But also like, you know, as much as he was good in defense, he did tend to push up the field as well. He wasn't afraid of going through the middle and just yeah. going for it. And I think that was what was so exciting. And what is always so exciting about Charlton Academy players is they do just, they just grab the opportunity. I think because if you've been at that club for so long. And then suddenly, you know, you're putting the first 11, here's your, here's your chance. And he just went for it. And yeah, unfortunately for us, <laughs> obviously he got scouted by you guys. But, <laughs> excuse me, but no, he was brilliant. But also off the field as well. He was really great. I remember I went to play over the year dinner and um i remember having just like a literally he would literally not remember this at all but for me i was like this is great it was like a two-minute conversation i was like yeah i mate like met joe gomez now life is still.
2: Yeah.
1: um but he's just lovely and yeah i think when i was speaking to steve avery about it you know he still keeps in touch with Cholton, and you know he hasn't i think he's a very i mean i don't know if you get this perspective from him but he's very kind of I don't know, very humble and he's very, you know, he doesn't forget his roots and he's very kind of like, you know, he's a modest player. I think he's mm. he's very likeable, I think, is how I'd say.
0: Yeah, well, I get the sense he's very popular at Liverpool. And yeah, as, as you said, he's got everything. He's quick, um, great in the air and fantastic on the ball as well. He's, he's yeah. a complete defender. And if it weren't for injuries, he'd be a regular for us, I think a lot. Well, he, I think he'd still be in a team having sort of firm partnership yeah. with Van Dijk. And I mean, he's still part of the England set up, but sort of, Losing that sort of place a little bit because of because of the injuries, but no, he's a brilliant <laughs> player um yeah is anyone else you want to pick out I mean one one player that stands out for me again because you know I remember him so was well, Darren Ben He's like a colleague of yours again I guess at Talk Sport now he's a pundit and a presenter there as well but yeah he was brilliant for Charlton as well I mean one incredible stat about about Darren Ben that I didn't realize until I did my research was and we should say joined Charlton uh, from Ipswich for two and a half million pound in June 2005 and then left for Spurs for 16.5 million pound in June 2007 he was Spurs his record signing at the time yeah. and part of the reason for that was well the main reason for that I should say was because I've had how many goals he scored at Charlton. And in the, let me get this right, the 2005-2006 season, so when obviously won of Kerbysh League seasons, he got 18 goals. He was the highest scoring Englishman in the Premier League, um, only behind Thierry Henry and Ruud van Nistelrooy. Yeah. So yeah, brilliant player, wasn't he? he? played for England as well.
1: Yeah. No, well, obviously, you know, this is kind of the time I started sort of paying attention. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> he was the sort of, he was, I think he's the first player that I can remember scoring. Yeah. Like for me, obviously that's like the big thing, but yeah, yeah, I have yeah. such a vivid memory of him scoring in front of the cover then that I can just, yeah. And I think also he's just another one of those, like I think at Charlton we love players that will wear their heart on their sleeves and he's just one of those players. He was just so exciting, has such good attitude. And I think off the pitch as well, he was brilliant, you know? So yeah. I think, yeah, I, just, I remember him scoring a few screamers at the Valley and just, yeah, the little old Tash was like, oh my God. And then now obviously... When I started at Talksport, I've like
0: seen him around. I was just like, "Oh my god, <laughs> this yeah, is yeah. A
1: bizarre feeling." But yeah, no, he's, got he's got his own show. Yeah, he's he's
0: on drive, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I was on the way back from the Etihad Stadium on Sunday. Liverpool played Man City. There, obviously, the two-all draw, and uh, we were in the car on the way back. And
1: was Darren Bent's boot room. Yeah, yeah Darren Bent's boot way. room. I don't,
0: yeah. I, you know, forgive me, but I listen to Talksport on a regular basis. I dip in and out yeah. of it, and we had the radio on on the way back. My mate was driving. My mate Les was driving back from Manchester, and. Yeah, he put he had Talk Sport on and Darren Ben's boot room. Darren, Bent, the presenter, he was pretty good. Little, oh, little no, team. No, he's
1: great. He's really yeah. good. Obviously, he's done something, Sky, isn't he? But he's very, yeah, yeah. he's very good. Very, very good.
0: sort of relaxed and easy behind the microphone. Yeah. yeah. um, Great. Tash, you've been absolutely brilliant. I'm gonna, I said, let you go. You've been, you're still at the office. I want, I want to make sure you get home um, and have a bit of an evening before you do that. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna, too
2: much.
0: <laughs> no, it's been it's, honestly, I've found it utterly fascinating. It's been brilliant. So uh, I do appreciate all the time you've given me. I'm gonna ask you the final question then before I let you get off, and it's the usual final question I ask on this podcast: if you could go back in time and change any moment from your time supporting Charlton up to now, and it can be absolutely anything, it could be a goal, uh, a transfer. Uh, something that happened in a match a very personal experience absolutely anything it could perhaps be a a Belgian owner taking over your club Belgian business becoming owner of your club whatever you want what would you choose
1: I think the running one would be obvious but um, I'm just trying to think I think and this you know obviously when he played for us he was absolutely fantastic I am very thankful for the times that he did give us but when we got relegated from the championship in 2020 Lyle Taylor was our Talismanic striker, right, in the League 1 promotion season and when we got promoted up to a championship. And unfortunately, when COVID hit, because he wanted to move on, he wanted to go to another club to make a big, big move, right, he refused to play after the COVID, like, after the break oh, was you. Okay. And yeah. he was our top goal scorer, was literally could like, poached goals out of, like, absolutely nothing, and a part of me kind of thinks that, unfortunately, if he'd stayed at the club, he's now gone to Nottingham Forest. He's on loan at Birmingham, and he's doing well there. But I think, you know, deep down, I feel like if he'd have stayed, I feel like we probably would have stayed up in the Championship. So, but who who knows what could have happened from there? But that is saying that I wish, if I could alter time, that would that would be the thing that would change.
0: Yeah. Fair enough. Very good answer. Um, Natasha Everett, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you very, very much.
1: It's been great.